Welcome back everyone to the second podcast from the Council of Europe seminar Intercultural Learning Which Ways Forward. You will be listening to Dr. Gavin Titley, the head of the Center for Media Studies of the National University of Ireland, trying to find out why Camp X-Ray has an intercultural policy. Enjoy. Thank you for inviting me. I haven't been in Budapest for a while, so it's very nice to be back and to see a lot of familiar faces and friends whom I have engaged in intercultural learning with over many years, which is why it feels slightly strange to come back to, to this room and to this company to, not just personally, but in, in how I want to conceptualize this talk, to possibly be, I didn't hear Henrik in the morning, but I gathered from some of the comments there was some pessimism, but to be even maybe more pessimistic than he was, I'm not sure, it's, it's not a competition, uh, <laughs> but if it is, I'm sure I'll win. This, the, the reason for this nostalgia is I've had many very powerful memorable learning experiences and moments in this youth center and in the one which is undergoing a makeover at the moment. And when I was thinking about this during the week preparing this talk, I realized also that very, very few of those moments were during something called intercultural learning in a program. I could describe what I felt and what I learned as intercultural, but I didn't find any memories suggesting themselves to me that when I came at the other end of a simulation exercise or a discussion on culture that I had been moved or shaken or had learnt in any part of me anything very much. And that's because I think when I think about intercultural learning the phrase which sums it up for me best if I can do my my expectations now from the morning if I had to have one sentence to describe intercultural learning it would be Peter Lauritsen's great description of it as something that interferes with your own making. And I like this sentence because interfere is, is almost something of a violent verb. It means that you have no choice but to deal with something that has put itself in your life. And making is an interesting term, and it's one that I'm going to come back to many times in the talk, because making is also about active process. It's also about the relationship between us as agents and the conditions in which we are allowed to make decisions, attempt to relate to others, and so forth. So I'm going to distinguish right from the start, um, in terms of my focus, between intercultural learning as a pedagogical process, as something which in the paper I talk about as being backstage, something which structures the lives of people in an educational process over days together, and focus more in this discussion on intercultural learning as a subject, the discussion, the very prevalent discussion of culture as a way of understanding identities, as a way of understanding social existence, as a way of understanding conflict potentially or problems and their solutions. And what I want to do is to try to pick up on some of the things that I explored in the, in the discussion document, plastic, political and contingent, and I'll explain all of those terms and what I meant by them rather in a little while. That discussion document came out of what was for me at the time almost a dream course, a long-term training course on intercultural learning. And by the end of it I found myself wondering, did we not do things, and Yale and, and, and Bastian uh, were, were also there so they can perhaps engage with my memories later. But afterwards we, we, we asked ourselves, did we not do things which were more intercultural by actually not talking about intercultural learning at all during this long-term training course? 
So we asked ourselves the question, which I set out to look at in the document that you have, which was in some ways a very modest question, but also a very complicated one. How adequate is intercultural learning to the realities of youth workers in Europe today? And the answer we found in a way was, well, it's not very relevant, actually. And that's one of the reasons or one of the things that I'm going to talk about today, depending, of course, on what we mean by it, which was part of the discussions that I heard this morning. One of our feelings at the end of the long-term training course in intercultural learning was, and of course I simplify a little bit here, was not that participants were speaking about intercultural learning, but intercultural learning was speaking participants. What I mean by this is that when people came with projects which they wanted to embed in terms of needs that they had in the environment that they worked in, maybe in an urban youth club, maybe in an exchange organization, maybe an anti-racist organization, whatever it might be, that they were often better served by not talking about intercultural learning. Because when they did talk about it, very often what happened was that very orthodox phrases, very orthodox solutions, very orthodox diagnoses of what was going on in their context were spoken through them. So in other words, it's not just because intercultural learning has a vocabulary which is internationally shared and is mainly in English. It's also because to think about things in terms of culture and what intercultural learning can do is also a process of translation. So we felt that very many people were, if you like, not being well served by trying to understand or to put a certain perspective on their own, on, on their own projects, on their own youth work, on their own participants by thinking in terms of intercultural learning. It obscured their meaning. The conclusion we reached, or semi-conclusion we reached from this, was that this had a lot to do with the concept of culture and not which concept we go for or which model, but the ways in which culture has become the, what Vivian Orchard calls the unassailable concept, the concept that nobody can touch, the one concept that everybody can share. And what this has got to do with the difficulties participants faced in conceptualizing, framing, doing projects in their environments, and what we felt to be some of the shortcomings of intercultural learning and aiding them to do that. So culture became if you like, Rui talks in his introductory paper about intercultural learning being consecrated, and certainly culture becomes something of a sacred notion. Social problems, including racism and discrimination, were always reduced to questions of culture, because by reducing them to questions of culture, you also open up the possibility of certain solutions, which is that the prejudiced individual needs more exposure to good aspects of culture, or needs to look inside themselves and learn more about their own relativity, and hopefully to fill up on the beauties of diversity and to come out the other side less prejudiced, more open, and all of these kinds of ideas that we already know. When culture was discussed, and this is where I think there is really a debate to be had about the relationship between intercultural learning and youth sociology, when culture was discussed, people who in other aspects of their lives on the course had very clearly multiple fluid identities, ways of presenting themselves as a young person, as a person from an urban space as a person perhaps of mixed nationality, as a music fan, whatever it might be, when it came to questions of culture, culture was only ever discussed in terms of what you could call snooker ball culture, bounded, essentialized little groups that kind of whack off each other and that you hope when they whack off each other that it's a mutually enriching or rather than mutually distressing experience. So from this, experience, from this one experience, and it's a very particular experience, I'm not saying that it is something which everyone, if they had done something similar, would have experienced or understood in the same ways. But it allowed us to ask, as I said, questions about the adequacy of intercultural learning. 
So I'm going to try to look at two aspects of this question of adequacy. What does intercultural learning allow us to do? What, is it, what are and why do certain shortcomings exist? And I'm going to, following the paper uh, which was circulated, suggest that intercultural learning, because of a particular notion of culture and the history of how that idea has become so important, is educationally and conceptually inadequate. It doesn't relate to or describe in many ways the world around us, but it's not just a descriptive question, it's also an ideological one. It asks us to see the world in particular ways as opposed to others. The second inadequacy that I want to address is a political inadequacy because also following Henrik, I would see intercultural learning as political education. I see up there in the expectations, somebody had put political slash apolitical question mark. There is of course, and people alluded to the fact that there's quite a lot of intercultural learning done increasingly across a range, for example, of areas of the workforce. For some people, intercultural learning is a certain form of management. It's just a management tool. But I would suggest that that is, even if it doesn't declare itself, that is also political because what it is suggesting, first of all, is that culture, cultural identity is always something which is predisposed to conflict and to difference. And this is one of the things that I want to argue here today. Educationally, for a long time, we have been looking for the recognition of difference. What I want to suggest is that it is being focused on difference to such an extent, which has made many of the problems that intercultural learning is experiencing. So, Following also then something that Hen Hendrik wrote in an earlier paper on youth workers, European level trainers, and relating this question of adequacy. When we're dealing with or working with multinational, pluralistic groups, international groups, whatever they might be, one of the arguments Hendrik makes really well about thinking about the trainer as educator is the idea that they should be knowledge brokers. In other words, we live, most of us, in environments where there has never been so much information, where there has never been so much access to models, to theories, to ways of thinking about explaining what's going on around us. Therefore, somebody who brings people together in an educational activity to think about the world in which they live needs to be able somehow to differentiate between the kinds of informations, the kinds of knowledge which are useful in that situation, which illuminate something, and those that don't. So one of my contentions today is that what intercultural learning promotes is not knowledge brokers, but actually knowledge chokers. In other words, it's restricting ways of looking at the world which would be far more profitable than thinking solely through the framework of culture and what it means for people's interaction in larger political economic environments. So, That's what I'm going to try to look at, is these two ideas of inadequacy. Firstly, conceptual educational inadequacy, that we are in thinking broadly and in discussing through intercultural learning, even if we're often talking about very different things, we are mainly trapped, or we are hostages, if you like, to the conceptual history that has given us, I see people mentioning their relevant methods and so forth, we are hostages of the conceptual history that gave us those methods. In other words, they didn't drop from a box out of the sky 20 years ago for people to say this is now finally the way of revealing the truth about the world. They have to be seen as related to their time and place. So one of the aspects of knowledge brokering I want to look at is how do trainers start to replace and to rethink the ways in which they ask people to see their environments and their world. And secondly, I want to look at the political inadequacy of it because I think the idea of culture in the way that it classifies 
and constructs people within intercultural learning, within a lot of the dominant modes of intercultural learning, they're not, this might sound controversial, but I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about it, people are not talking about culture, they're actually talking about race. Because inside the idea of culture, which we use predominantly today, is the history of racial thinking. We might call it culture, but it's still race. And this is something I think we have to unthink if intercultural learning is going to, if you like, redevelop, but also to address the kinds of things which Rui and Hendrik were saying at the end of the discussion about the relationship of the individual to society and why change never seems to take place on the political, uh, on a kind of macro-political level. So what I think we need to do is to make intercultural learning, if you like, no longer complicit in organizing and thinking about people in ways which are in Europe at the moment central to various forms of racist politics. In the last few years, we've had discussions about how migration threatens cultural European values. This is something which we can relate to dominant, the assumptions which are there are something we can relate to dominant modes of intercultural learning. Rui mentioned in his introduction the idea of a clash of civilizations. The way in which the clash of civilizations conceptualizes the world is very often one that we will hear discussed here. It's just that when Samuel Huntington talks about it, it's about will to power, one civilization subduing another. When we talk about it here, we hope that they can reach some kind of mutual enriching understanding. I want to say that this is absolutely the wrong way to think about the world. And finally, as Henrik mentioned, one of the things which I suppose shows an intrinsic weakness in intercultural learning and which is more widespread is that all over Europe, particularly Western Europe, discussions are about the end of multiculturalism, the crisis of multiculturalism. There's been too much relativism. Migrants and minorities have been allowed to live in parallel societies in their own culture, and we must compel or force them to integrate or to assimilate into our ways and our values, which just happen to be Western and universal. Intercultural learning, I think, can have very little to say about this because it uses the same foundations of knowledge. So what I want to do in this talk is to look at a couple of things as a headline to develop, not to just simply read out, but to develop the ideas which you already have in the paper. I want to, in the first section of the talk, talk about what I call the living library of conceptual history, so we don't just have living libraries with people in them. We can have living libraries whereby when we talk about culture, when we use a particular kind of methodology, implicit in that is a living library of different ways of thinking about culture and its consequences. I want to look for a while at the idea that I suggested that when we are talking about in very many of the models of intercultural learning, when we talk about culture, we're actually talking about race, because I think this is key to understanding why we reach some of the dead ends around culture, identity, political possibility that seem to be coming up this morning. Briefly, I want to look at the idea that if we are to think about educational conceptual inadequacy, then we need to look at what is the kind of thinking which is going on around the idea of culture. And a question which intercultural learning, it seems to me, never really answers is, where does culture live? Is it something which is purely cognitive, symbolic, which we engage the world through? Does it exist outside of individuals, as would have been maintained in more classical forms of theory? Where does culture live? What is the proof for it? And finally, the question which I put in the title of the lecture, Camp X-Ray in Guantanamo Bay has an intercultural policy. 
it most clearly doesn't have human rights. I want to ask why does it have an intercultural policy for people who have been made into non-persons? They exist outside of international law in a de-internationalized space. So why do they have an intercultural policy? Okay. To try to kick this off, we have something from YouTube, which I'd like you just to watch for a minute. Those of you who aren't from North Dublin like me will wonder what on earth something called the Balbriggan Civil War is. Balbriggan is an area of Dublin which is, um, over the last years has experienced massive urban growth. Lots and lots of houses being built but very few resources being built and in particular a shortage of hospital beds and a shortage of school places. And what this has meant is that because the Irish primary school system is still predominantly organised by the Catholic Church as a surrogate for the state, the Catholic churches who run the schools, because of the demand for places, have been giving priority to Catholic children who, because of the patterns of migration to Balbriggan, tend predominantly to be Irish Catholic children. So Balbriggan has become, if you like, a sort of a watchword for thinking about in Ireland what the consequences of migration are. This is a video which was put on YouTube, which as you can say in a very clear, bold, racist way, is suggesting that particularly the migration of people from Central Africa to Balbriggan is going to result in ghettoization, tribal conflict, a takeover of a Dublin area by people who don't really belong there. So this is a clear piece of propaganda. On the other hand, an official report which was released a week before this was posted on YouTube using a very different language, the language of management and the language of understanding, argue that unless the government does something in Balbriggan quickly, Ireland will have a future, or Dublin will have a future of ghettos and ethnic tension, as has been apparently the case in other Western European societies. So all that really divides the YouTube video and the official perspective on what's happening in Ireland is the politeness of the language and the politeness of the representation. What these two perspectives share is a vision of migrants as being essentially cultural as being defined by their culture, defined by their culture to an extent that if you allow them to congregate together, they will only live in ghettos of their own making because they won't mix with anyone else, and conflict will emerge if you leave cultures to their own devices. So what we have in both cases is visions of migrants in this instance as being irreducibly, essentially different. This unfortunately is also the culture of the Dirdians. It is the culture of icebergs. It is the culture of lily ponds. It is the culture of simulation games. It is the primary way that intercultural learning, as it has been disseminated and developed and circulated in these networks, has come to think about cultures. So simply because this is a very clear example of racist propaganda, what is more important than the obvious overt racism of this is that both in the official pronouncements of Dublin local government and also in very many of the resources and approaches to intercultural learning which we share, this is the worldview and the assumptions around culture which exist. And this is a notion of culture which develops in the early 20th century predominantly in classical anthropology and sees, tends to see cultures as systemic, in other words they involve systems, systems of difference, systems of separation and systems which are more or less essential. That is the first problem I think we need to look at, because this is only one way of conceptualizing culture. 
But there are a whole range of reasons as to why it has become, if you like, the most successful one from a different range of ways of thinking about it. German sociologist Wolfgang Welch has a very useful way of looking at the, what he calls not the concept of culture, the idea of culture, which is this. He argues the concept of culture is not just descriptive, as we see there. It's empirical. These people look like this. This is what their culture is like. We can describe it in these ways. It is also, he argues, prescriptive. It's like putting on a particular pair of glasses. When we talk about and think through culture as a framework, it's inviting us to see things in certain ways and to keep certain things in the frame and to leave other things out of the frame. Yeah. So when we talk about culture, we are not just describing a reality, we are interpreting and evaluating it at the same time. This has two, two main consequences. The first is that culture is a very diffuse idea. It's an idea, as I said, which has, and we're going to try to imagine it as an iceberg in a minute, but it has a whole variety of different influences that when we talk, when we discuss, we activate them knowingly or not. Ways of, overlapping ways of thinking about and seeing the world. The second point which is important though is that, and this is the point made by Chris Barker here, is that when we admit that culture has a history, and it's a history which is both intellectual and political, which allows us to look at why it has become as important as it has, when we start to think in this way, we can start to see the concept of culture as something which is contingent. In other words, something which is contingent is something which is okay for the time being. It's never permanent. It's always something which is open to change and should be something which is open to change in relation to knowledge brokers and knowledge brokering. So Chris Barker argues that it is a mistake to see culture as something which, is, which exists, which can be described, which can be learnt about that instead it has to be looked at as what he calls a mobile signifier, a way of talking about different things which is powerful precisely because when you and I talk about culture, we may be talking about completely different things, but we're sharing a certain kind of language. And this is why, and this is where the title of the paper comes from, this is why Barker argues that culture is plastic, meaning it can be moulded, it can be made into different shapes. It's political because it is always about prescribing ways of seeing people and ways of seeing their realities and ways of seeing their agency, their power, their possibilities in those realities. And it's contingent because it is something which is always changing and in this context its contingency is useful to us because it allows us to think about how it could be changed. So this is not a lecture obviously just in conceptual history but I think it's important to think a little bit about the implications of what is being said here. One of the problems with culture in whole varieties of its usage is that there's always been a tension between two ways of thinking. On the one hand, which I referred to earlier, there's the idea of making. Culture is an active process. As cultural agents, we, we, we are sense makers. We interpret, we perceive, we engage, we modify behavior, habits, skills on the basis of that. On the other hand, culture has always carried the sense of being made. In other words, if I'm a member of a culture, there are ways open to you to understand me in particular kinds of ways. So there's a tension, if you like, between ways historically people have talked about culture as process and culture as state of being. Or as Tim Ingold puts it, living culturally, which means to be a sense-making human being, or living in cultures, which is to see people as living in tribes, essentially, bounded, essential cultural groups. So we have a tension then 
And this is a tension, as we'll see, which is central to intercultural learning because on the one hand, what intercultural learning is interested in when we talk about competences, when we talk about self-reflection, when we talk about interfering with your own making, we're talking about making and living culturally. But when we start to talk about cultures and people's identities in relation to them, then we are talking about being made and living in cultures. And the problem is that this mode of thinking about culture is one which cannot be separated from colonialism, from slavery, from classical anthropology, and from a whole variety of other things which had a vested interest in seeing people in particular ways. And that, I think, is one of the challenges that we face. In the paper, I look at some of the reasons as to why culture has become so, imp so important. I don't want to, to, to dwell on them now, other than to talk about this idea of contingency. And to give one example, we now, to some extent, take it for granted that culture is a shared framework of meaning and way of thinking about people, and there are some reasons for that. But in the past, culture simply didn't exist as a concept for understanding human activity and human interrelationships and human kind of commonality. And so culture meant, among other things, products which were of universal value the best that has been thought and said, art, literature, philosophy, which even if it comes from ancient Greece or wherever it might be, is of universal value. So culture for a long time had the sense not of particularity, of difference, but of commonality, of universalism, of something to aspire to. And what this meant is that a great many people who were subordinated could not be seen as being cultural. They could be seen as being masses, they could be seen as being slaves, they could be seen as being people who existed to be conquered and so forth. So at a certain point in time, and this is what I mean about contingency, thinking about culture became politically very important and very powerful. The example that I choose is one which is deliberately, if you like, at the heart of the West. E.P. Thompson, the historian, in his enormous book, The Making of the English Working Class, and here we have this idea of making again, argues almost poetically, he says, I call this book a book about making because it's a study in active process, which owes as much to agency, the ability to do as to conditioning. The working class did not rise like the sun at, uh, on, at an appointed time, he says. It was present at its own making. In other words, historically, and he's thinking here about the 19th century and the tendency to see people in industrial societies just as sort of masses of labor units that could be expendably brought to factories. What Thompson is talking about is that by thinking about culture, it empowers people at this moment, at this contingent moment. Because before this, they were not seen as being active. They were seen as the passive victims of history. So that's just an example, if you like, which I go into in much more detail in the paper, as to why culture becomes very important in a range of ways in the mid to late 20th century for a lot of people and for a lot of arguments about the nature of society that have involved differences of power, subordination, and so forth. So in our moment now, which is also, I would say, a contingent one because we're having this kind of discussion, it behoves us in a way, or it's up to us to think about in what ways or what value does thinking culturally bring to the work that we do. Thompson argued that by thinking culturally, he brings a different value to writing history, writing in the experiences of ordinary people. Now we're at a moment where we think, is thinking culturally something which is simply too confusing? If we look at this iceberg here, which I... I suppose we're all reasonably familiar with at this stage. The iceberg 
and it's, don't get me wrong, according to certain levels, certain discussions with certain groups, this is in many ways something very useful. But what it does is it describes precisely the kind, this kind of hegemonic dominant theory of culture I've been talking about, and I'll go a little bit into its, its history in a minute. We have the notion that something is primarily in awareness, but that all the rest of this software, this systemic influence on us, is out of awareness, and that that's something we have to try to learn, or that that's something which might be under our control. Yet at the same time, because we can talk about these things, and because we look at lifelong learning, and because we engage in intercultural learning, we simply know that this isn't the case. Far more of this is in awareness than this model would suggest. So what I think is we need a new iceberg, and what is above the waterline is the idea of culture, and what is below the waterline are all the various different kinds of influences and theories and philosophies, and most importantly, politics, which have shaped that idea. Because I think as trainers and educators, it is our duty to dive in and to know what is beneath that. We haven't been gifted at the end of history, a notion of culture which simply explains everything. To explain this a little bit more, I need to think or turn a little bit to thinking about the history of other aspects of the history of culture, but in particular in relation to this idea of culture merely being a rebranding at some level of race. I discovered this in my, my messing around that Claude Levi Strauss, the French uh, anthropologist, is 99 today, so I thought we could not necessarily send him a cake, but just acknowledge it. And he's important because he and other anthropologists like him have been very, very influential, even if we may never have heard of them, in shaping the kind of intercultural work that we do. They are very, very, very heavily present under the waterline, and I would argue puncturing the ships as they go by. After the Holocaust, the Shoah, the idea of race, which had essentially organized European societies in the modern period, in the 19th century and early 20th century, unashamedly, there was no shame in talking about race, none at all. It was quite trendy, in fact, to sit around and talk about race. After the slaughter of the Holocaust, among all of the various responses which existed in terms of trying to reconstruct Europe and a sense of European civilization, UNESCO sponsored a series of conferences and a series of publications which eventually found their way in different ways into educational practice about how to, if you like, move beyond race. And because race is so centrally associated with it being a kind of pseudo-scientific idea, the idea that we have here, as you can see, the measurement of skulls telling us something about the essential physiological and mental qualities of somebody, because race is so associated with racial science, bogus forms of science, bogus forms of science which were quite popular in Europe, as I said, in the modern period. Interestingly enough, very often racial science was more about the working class than it was about foreigners or different people, explaining why certain people were, if you like, stupid yet strong enough to work in the coal mines. That was one of the, the functions of racial science. What UNESCO is interested in was, if you like, arguing that because race is a bogus form of science, if we simply admit that the science is wrong, that race has never existed, we can get rid of racism. Instead, Claude Levi Strauss argued, what we should think of is in terms of cultures, relative cultures, cultures that have internal systemic 
if you like, lives and properties which define people and which the anthropologist or the intercultural educator must somehow, if you like, learn to read and learn to represent and learn to engage. So what Claude Levi-Strauss argued was that what actually causes racism is ethnocentrism. Nothing to do with race or racism, ethnocentrism. And by learning more about the other, by questioning our own prejudices, we can diminish our ethnocentrism and engage with others. This should sound very familiar. This, I think, in many ways, is one of the fundamental philosophies and sets of assumptions around intercultural learning. The problem is that just by relabeling something doesn't mean that you have unthought it. In other words, race was never just about science. Race was about classifying people into nationalities, into ethnic groups in the modern period when the systems that we now live in, contingent systems, nation states, which seem natural and taken for granted, were organizing their validity. Race and nationality have a very close relationship with each other because what they suggest is that the people who are living here have a legitimacy which is different from those who shouldn't be living here, who, by the way, are inferior to us. So what UNESCO was interested in doing was saying that race allows us to think in hierarchies. There are more progressive races, there are better races, whereas culture, because of this relativity of systems, can no, can, cannot let us think in hierarchies. So, for example, Levi-Strauss explained the Industrial Revolution in the West essentially as an accident of geography. It just happened under those conditions at a particular time. So, the problem, though, as I said, is that all this does is make an artificial separation between racist science and race as a system of thought and classification. UNESCO's idea of culture and the one that we work with is still in a fundamental way race. In other words, what it does is it organizes people into groups, essentially in bounded groups and in ways in which we can explain those people, either stereotypically if we're ignorant or with a greater level of sensitivity and empathy if we're interculturally competent. But the imaginary has not changed one little bit. So whether we call it race or call it culture, the problem is that it still asks us to see the world and to classify and to divide people in the world in broadly similar ways. But what it has also done is it has made it very difficult to think about racism because simply by redefining everything as cultural, then we get a whole range of responses which are not able to deal with the legacies of race and questions of belonging and legitimate belonging which are so important still in Europe today. And as Hendrik was saying at the end of his lecture, are resurgent across Western Europe. Once we have let go of the idea of race, then what we let go of is the importance of the experience of racism. In other words, we may not talk about it, but people experience racism. Their bodies, their selves, their identities are raced by other people or by the state. So it still exists in its experience. But one of the problems, I think, and for me this was almost the breaking point with intercultural learning as it's practiced at the European level, was the recent campaign, which for reasons I can only describe as being consumerist, decided that we won't talk about anti-racism anymore, we'll talk about being positive, we're for good things, we're for diversity. But I would ask, where is the experience of racism in this, actually? It's disappeared. And that's part of the problem. Okay, I'm going to, don't have, as always happens with these kinds of issues, as much time 
as I thought we'd have, otherwise I'd be the age of Claude Levi-Strauss by the time that we, that we finished. So I just want to push on with one or two questions then that we can, that we can finish with. We can probably get to these in discussion. What we have done, I think, is for very understandable reasons, focusing on culture and the way that it explains difference with all of these hidden histories, is we have actually, in a strange kind of way, as educators who are interested in lifelong learning and the autonomy of young people, we have actually promoted a certain kind of, if you like, death by culture. We think about people as cultural beings, first and foremost, particularly if they're minorities, but we don't, I think a lot of the time, think about what Tim Ingold calls real living, experiencing, meaning-making human beings who follow particular lifeways. Part and parcel of following a particular lifeway may well be to imagine yourself and experience yourself as part of a bounded culture, but it's not the only thing, and it's not something that travels beyond that experience. In thinking about culture in these ways, just to make a couple of points to, to finish off, the problem for intercultural learning politically is that it understands the world in exactly the same ways as various forms of racism-heavy or racism-light political movements in Europe understand the world. And this is obviously a problem for political intercultural learning as political education. And it's one of the reasons, I think, why Hendrik's question at the end, why there has been no progress on the political level, this is one of the reasons for it. The categories and ways of thinking about culture which we work with are still race thinking. They still imagine people, as I said, in particular ways, and they still imagine them in hierarchies. Think of visa regimes, think of bogus asylum seekers, think of all of these kinds of racialized terms. But because intercultural learning and multiculturalism and so many other philosophies have focused so much on culture, they're now vulnerable when everyone else learns to talk about culture too. So not just have right-wing groups, for example, in many ways, learned to master the art of talking culturally, but you can't get a politician to shut their mouth these days before they have a mention of culture, because talking about culture is cost-free. I respect you, you respect me, and we all live in consumer societies where difference is actually a very valuable commodity. So as long as we leave economics out of it, as long as we leave politics out of it, we can all appreciate each other's cultures as much as possible. That is why all over Europe you'll have governments who are putting money into pro-diversity campaigns at the same time as they are preparing biometric tagging, for example, of non-EU migrants or whatever it might be. There's no confusion in their minds. And this is important in understanding the contemporary crisis of multiculturalism as we see it here, which is that because multiculturalism, interculturalism has always accepted these reductive terms around culture, when somebody turns around and says, we've had a little bit too much culture, then what are you going to say? Because the other aspects, if you like, the other arguments have been left out. So across Europe at the moment, it's very common for politicians to say, we must respect minorities, we must respect diversity, but there can be too much diversity. There are, have to be limits of tolerance. People have to learn our ways. There have been people in our societies, in our midst, who are like some kind of cancer in the middle of the society, people who have grown up for example, British, French, Dutch, or whatever it might be, but are not British, French, or Dutch in their values. This is a product of understanding culture in a particular way, because what you can see still there is the racial hierarchy. And this is why tolerance for me is a problematic concept. Tolerance is a contingent offer. It's an offer that can be withdrawn. 
Tolerance doesn't cut both ways. You don't have, for example, in Ireland, the Muslim Council of Ireland saying we can no longer tolerate the fact that everyone who's between the ages of 16 and 24 goes out, drinks their head off and gets sick on a Saturday night. They can't say that because the limits of tolerance always apply only to those people who are here contingently, who don't really belong. So by thinking of culture, if you like, in ways which equalize us, without realizing that within political formations they don't equalize us, there are still hierarchies, then what we're saying through intercultural learning or through multicultural education is essentially, this is my world, you're just living in it. We can learn to communicate culturally, but when it comes to crisis around immigration, when it comes to crisis, various kinds of economic crisis, well then, you're always going to be to, you're always going to, be to blame to some extent. So I'll just finish with this because I think this was something which made a big impression on me when I read it. And it's why I try to look at the issues today in terms of this idea of why is there an intercultural policy in Camp X-Ray. There is an intercultural policy in Camp X-Ray because everybody has been talking about culture in ways which are deeply reassuring. Culture works even better than nationality as a form of interrelation. Because what it allows us to do is to be universally different. We are different in ways which are the same. Which, as I said, at a certain point in time, a certain point in history, as I write about in the paper, this is quite important. But because culture has been separated into merely the realm of the culture, one's identity, manifestations of culture, then questions which are clearly about race and culture, such as Guantanamo Bay, all the Bush government has to do to look legitimate is to say, We've given them the Koran, we respect their cultural beliefs and traditions, and we have organized the day in terms of an intercultural policy. You can find this on the internet, they did this. And it's quite frightening to think that for a lot of people, that makes it semi-legitimate, if you like, to respect the cultural identities of people who have become non-persons, they don't exist, they're outside of a judicial process. And in describing this, Paul Gilroy, a sociologist and writer on these issues, had a look at what goes on, or had a look at the experiences of one particular returnee, somebody who escaped, who was, who was allowed out of Guantanamo Bay. And when they came back, gave an interview to a newspaper, where they were asked, obviously, how did it feel? What was it like? What did you miss? And what two of the people who had been released from Guantanamo Bay said they missed most was Highland Shortcake Biscuits. These are sort of touristic Scottish biscuits which are sold all over Britain and Ireland. They really missed the biscuits in Guantanamo Bay where under the intercultural policy they'd been given culturally sensitive food. They really missed biscuits. And so what Gilroy argues, he says, it's there in the hunger lodged in those battered and humiliated bodies that the problem of assimilation, in other words, seeing things in terms of problems and solutions through culture, should be laid to rest forever. I happen to agree with him. So hopefully we can then take this on to try to think about what it means for addressing these inadequacies in the future.